Welcome to another episode of Blindness No Barrier, a memoir of David Blythe. I am John Coleman and this is the seventh of a series of interviews focusing on different aspects of the remarkable life of David Blythe. It will cover the key aspects of David's life that made him the person that he is, with a particular focus on the pivotal role David played in the development of human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. The episodes are produced by myself and edited by Robert Love. The music is by the very talented Jeff Irvin, and I appreciate the support of Blind Citizens Australia in the promotion of this memoir. Hello, David. In the last episode, we were looking at the period um, leading up to the eight years you had as regional president. And whilst we talked quite a lot about the activities of that regional committee and what the um, priorities were and the focuses were, I was wondering, now that we're bringing the story to the period of your presidency of the World Blind Union, was your period as vice president, was that formative in terms of your ideas and how you became a president? Oh, very much so. Um, the people that um, I engaged with at that time certainly had a big influence on a lot of the things that I brought forward as president. I think of people like uh, Mrs Chan from Hong Kong, Mrs. Uhashi from Japan were very strong leaders in providing better services for people who are blind. Uh, in, in Japan, you know, in the 1980s when we went to Japan the first time, we found out that they already had all the utilities uh, accounts given to them in Braille. Uh, all these things were so far advanced on what we were doing. And, uh, Do you mean like gas and electricity yes. and things like that? So right. the company would produce the bill in Braille and yes. send it to people? Yes. That's fantastic. And that was, you know, people like Mrs. Iwahashi and her late husband, uh, they they were forerunners in that type of thing, uh, uh, program. And uh, and Mrs. Chen, she, she took the Hong Kong Society from just in, the, in an old building into, into two big towers, uh, which she built and ran tremendous services for blind people in, in Hong Kong. So these people actually were quite an influence on me and uh, also the other side of things where we saw in countries like the Philippines uh, where there were services were so poor that people were very, very depressed and um, very disadvantaged actually and uh, I, I found that um, the haves and have-nots was to the fore in those sort of countries. So when you have a, a mixture of all those conditions, plus what you see because being on the um, international board, you had time to notice what was happening in Africa and North America, Latin America, Europe, um, and you started to get a lot of these ideas that formulated in your mind. What it actually did do is that I think that Basically, I believed in all these issues, but I had no reason for to know why I believed in other than that I thought it was the right thing to do. When you actually saw that these things weren't happening for some people, equality was not a given, um, you realised then that uh, 
what we take for granted is not necessarily what the case is in other places. Would the most important example of that be the issue of women's rights? Because I know that that's going to become an important part of the story of your presidency. Is this where it, you really saw the uh, issues of women discrimination against women in practice? Yes, very much so. And um, that was really highlighted to me in the Philippines when I went there in 1985. Um, I could not believe the the degradation of women who were blind uh, and how they were treated. Uh, it, it, it was atrocious and uh, I understand that women mightn't have been treated very well in general in the Philippines, although Mrs Aquino, who was the president, uh, uh, was a very fine lady and we met her, but even she uh, felt that discrimination uh, uh, and uh, fortunately she had the power to um, insist that people do the right thing but uh, you know it really was brought home to me there and I um, found um, that my thinking hardened on that issue and I knew then that if ever I was in a position that would be my key issue for the World Blind Union. I believe the World Blind Union had to fix itself first in that issue of equality before it started to tell the rest of the world how to do it and, uh, and that was the emphasis that I took forward. I know that it might be a little bit dark but would you be able to give us some indication of what you were seeing in respect of blind women in the Philippines, what they were experiencing? Well there was a specific case that I can mention where uh, a girl uh, who was born blind and uh, She'd been, um, when she reached puberty, she was just handed off to a, another guy. And uh, when he was finished with her and she probably had a child, she'd come back home again and the same thing happened on at least three occasions. And uh, These weren't marriages, this no, was just sexual uh, slavery. Yep, yeah, yeah, uh, and the, the family got money for it and uh, mm. um, it was, that was told to me and, she, and we had evidence of it. And... Uh, you know, to me, um, that was abhorrent. And yet, you know, there were some very fine blind women in the Philippines too. Uh, we had a lady there that worked with us later on, and uh, I can talk about her later, but she was a, a very fine worker for women, but she knew what a difficult issue it was. Mm. The We're coming up to the period of the presidency, so what? when did you start to think that maybe you would run for president? And what was that lead-up process? Were you approached? Did you start to formulate an idea that this was how you could have that influence that um, that you thought you would like to have? What was what was the steps? No, I uh, did not um, have any ambition to be president. Um, not because I didn't think I could do the job, but because I thought it would be too difficult to try and do it from Australia under the conditions we had here. We had no no financial support um, for people to do these jobs. You had to do it at all at your own expense. The whole time I was um, president of the region, that was done mostly at my own expense. There was a little bit of support from BCA, but it didn't have the resources. And uh, so uh, that was done at my own expense and uh, we had to do that. So I didn't have any um, ideas of being president. But we were at a conference in... Um, in, in Japan in 1991 and when Duncan Watson, the then president of the World Blind Union, 
asked me if I would be prepared to be president of the WBU. The European Blind Union had discussed who they thought should succeed him because each person could only be there for one term, one four-year term, and I was approached then. And uh, uh, and it was done at a time when a number of Australians were there as well from Austra uh, first delegates over there. And I had to think very hard about that. And um, uh, of course I was flattered and, uh, and and I was very strongly supported by a couple of my friends from other countries and Australia, I've got to say. And But I had to come back to Australia and, and talk to people about whether I could be supported. I mean, I had to talk to my employer, which was the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind. Um, BCA had to really consider the issue uh, uh, where we were going to get the funds from, um, how I was going to manage. Uh, a lot of people internationally said, oh, we'll support you, we'll support you, but <coughs> it didn't really happen. Um, <laughs> I think all elections are a bit like that. <laughs> That's right. And uh, But once it was declared that I was going to stand for president, there was um, no one put anyone up against me. Uh, um, I have to say that the status of Australia in that regard was very high in the WBU because we were seen as an independent group. We were seen as people who really did look at issues and uh, and accept them as they were, no matter where they came from. Um, we didn't have any allegiances to Europe or North America in particular. We were actually strong advocates for Asia, <laughs> if anything. And uh, so we went from there. So then when we came back to Australia, of course, we Bill Jolly was um, executive officer for the BCA at the time. and. Uh, he worked very hard and we put a submission to the government and eventually we got 30000 a year for the four-year period from the government and that made it possible for me to do the job. Do you think then that that's why you were thought of as the next president by the the incumbent president and and the board because they wanted somebody who not only obviously was performing well as a regional president but also didn't carry that baggage that if they were European, they'd be opposed by the Americas. If they were from the Americas, they'd be opposed from the Europeans. Yes, there was a lot of that. At, um, um, Duncan had a, a board that had two very strong people on it, um, Arnie Husbeck and Kenneth Jernigan, both of them passed on now. but. They were very strong uh, advocates, very articulate, great policy thinkers, uh, and but totally opposed to one another. One was Europe, uh, Husbeck was European, and uh, uh, Jernigan was American, and uh, and and they did divide. And uh, I was a bit of a peacemaker at times. Uh, I was friends with both, actually, and. Uh, and I know with Duncan in his presidency quite often I was the circuit breaker in some of the issues that were up before us because you had other people involved too, you had Spain and others too. So there were, and Latin America was having fights with North America over the position of Puerto Rico, whether it should be in the North American region or should be in the Latin American because of language and um, issues like that were being flown all around the place. And uh, so I was there. So that's um, I, I'm pretty sure that's why they came to me, and um, I was able to moderate those guys and uh, be friends with 
with both and um, and understand both their points of view but not agree totally with them and uh, be prepared to say it in a um, in a more uh, conciliatory way or also to be bluntly say to them straight out look you're being foolish uh, you know and um, they they accepted that from me whereas I'm not too sure they would have accepted it from other parts of the world do I understand right from what you said a moment ago that you were unopposed for the position? Yes, totally unopposed. And do you think that you were seen as a broadly supported and therefore perhaps unbeatable candidate? That's why nobody else put up their hand? That could be a point. Um, I'm not too sure. Um, I know that I was seen and later referred to as the grassroots president, the uh, especially the people's president, um, I, th- I think I had pretty strong support in Africa and uh, Asia in particular. I wasn't so well known in Latin America, only by the delegates from there, but I wasn't known by the countries. North America I was pretty well known, and um, in parts of Europe I was reasonably well known. So I think there was a general feeling that they wanted somebody in the role who would uh, consolidate the organisation. Duncan had done a pretty good job in doing that um, after the first term. Uh, and The first term, I, I think Abdullah did a great job, but he was not popular with particularly the Europeans and uh, <coughs> because of being uh, from the Middle East. Uh, there's a lot of prejudice in the world and it exists in blindness the same as it does everywhere else and uh, I think he suffered from that. But, uh, he um, he had a different style and uh, it's a style that uh, I, I, I could handle it quite frankly. Uh, he was um, aggressive and uh, as far as he was concerned you said you do it, it was done. Uh, now that doesn't always happen that way and um, but he didn't see it differently and the Europeans saw it very differently so then when Duncan came in um, there was an election for his presidency and that was a bit divisive and unfortunately I was part of that I was in the opposition side on that and uh, and uh, but interestingly enough uh, the guy who stood against Duncan for president he he got a much lower vote than I got for the position as vice president of his running mate. So uh, even then, the support was starting to grow for me. That was four years before. So that when I did come up, uh, I was elected pretty uh, unanimously as um, the person they wanted. So what was the year that you were elected president? 1992. All right. So you're president of the World Blind Union, and I, we're going to talk about... Uh, your experiences of that and the major issues that the World Blind Union focused on at that time. But I think to put it, to understand better what you were doing and how you were doing it, it would be good to talk about the structure. What was, when did the meetings occur? How often? um, How did you meet with other people? What was the structure in terms of the, the leading body? Vers- and then the regional bodies, and then the main the main conventions, which um, we've just talked about. Well, the WBU has a con- world convention, a world assembly, they call it, every four years. At that time, the new president is appointed, the new board is appointed. Uh, in theory, each of the regions 
um, as a president and they should be appointed at that time but they usually are appointed at other places but um, so they, the president, the vice president, the secretary general, the treasurer plus the six regional presidents because originally there were seven but we changed it to six um, in the second term of the Worldwide Union and uh, they made up the board then uh, that was the officers meeting we call that they used to meet twice a year then there were three other people elected from each region each of the regions elected them and they met once every two years like at the general assembly and then once in between general assemblies and they were what was known as the executive to me, that was a bit superfluous, actually, um, in hindsight, and um, and in reality at that time, the idea I think was to try and find out who the next lot of leaders were going to be, and I really haven't seen anyone come from that area that wouldn't have got there anyway. Uh, and it is restrictive in the fact that um, when you only have one member from a country. Um, that country decides who that person's going to be, not the general community of the World Blind Union. It's it's two two individual, and uh, the World Blind Union doesn't have the capacity to go out and look for the president they want. Although they did do that in my case, that uh, I don't think it's been done in any other case that um, where it has happened that way. Uh, the only way I can see that we influenced uh, who the next well not the next president but who a president could be was the emphasis we placed on the status of women within the World Blind Union later on but other than that I can't think of anything that really has made the World Blind Union go and look for who it wants to be president rather than accepting who was available. So there's one major convention which is going to happen at the end of your presidency that's yes. every four years. Yes. The board um, which sounds to me very much the engine of the World well Blind Union, that meets twice a year. Yes. And then the executive um, also meets, was that every two years? Every two years, yeah. yeah. Mm. So all these meetings, I understand from what you said earlier that the technology really wasn't there to allow these meetings to occur through telephone systems and obviously there wasn't the 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 sophisticated internet and all the other um, uh, things that go with that so where are these meetings happening and how did you and others get there well we one of the members would host the meetings um, I had meetings in um, Kenya I had meetings in uh, North America I had meetings in Europe I had meeting I had an executive meeting in Australia I had a meeting in Hong Kong um, and uh, Japan we had a meeting um, so the different uh, nations would host those meetings uh, some of them would provide accommodation others didn't um, it all depended uh, so that's how they were held the most sophisticated thing we had for communication was a fax machine <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even have mobile phones or computers or anything like that it's and hard uh, to have a meeting by fax that's right and uh, skype didn't exist so uh, you know telephones were problematical uh, on telephone hookups like that around the world especially with those numbers 
so we had to meet and uh, we did uh, and we uh, and that's how it was done and um, we um, the agenda would be worked out between the secretary general and the president and uh, any other officers that had to come along that would send information in and then we'd have your, your two day meeting sometimes it went three days but mostly two days and uh, that's what I say you, you went to these countries you got to the airport you went to the hotel you went to a meeting you went back to the hotel you had another meeting you went back to the hotel then to the airport <laughs> and you came home great <laughs> not much sightseeing then <laughs> nothing and uh, but you did get an opportunity to talk to other people you got an opportunity to hear what was happening in other parts of the world and uh, you did learn a lot and uh, but what you really learnt was that uh, the problems are pretty well the same all over the world it's just the degree of the problem that is that changes uh, mm. you know uh, in australia uh, we've always had a problem with getting braille uh, but we get it eventually in some parts of the world they don't and other parts of the world they get it free very freely and uh, like in south africa i saw there there was a you know you think of south africa was a bit behind the eight ball in many ways but uh, they had a braille production unit there that produced braille in 11 languages really yeah and that was in uh, in um, pretoria and uh, they, you know, fantastic, and uh, they were, it was a unit probably employed twenty or thirty people, and uh, mm. they they produced this braille in many fo- languages, and uh, some of them were sent into different parts of Africa, but others were used in South America itself, in South Africa themselves. So, you know, the the things like that, and then you went to Europe, and where everything was really. Um, Blind people had great equipment and everything because of their insurance schemes that they have over there. Um, and, you know, they all had the latest braille producing documents and everything. And uh, then you came to North America where they were pretty good, but, you know, not quite as good as Europe. Then you come to Africa, uh, Asia and Australia and, uh, you know, in Japan, everything was available. In Hong Kong, they produced a newspaper in braille every, mo- every day, the uh, China Post was produced in Braille. Um, but when you come to little old Australia, uh, well, we didn't have any of that. And, uh, and uh, so you realise that the things that we had that were good for us were had to be compensated by the things we didn't have. Mm. Uh, just before we continue with the issues, I'd still like to come back to the mechanics of the organisation mm. because if my maths are right, that's 11 meetings uh, when you were president... Mm. that are overseas so you're flying to everyone sometimes you're paying for accommodation sometimes mm. you're not mm. um is that i you talked about some government support but a mm. lot of that must have been coming out of your pocket yeah well it was it, it cost money <laughs> so but really without your job at the rvib yeah it just wouldn't have been possible would not have been possible i couldn't have done it if i was still working for um BCA or trying to run my own business it just couldn't be done and um, you had to have the support of a major agency but not only for your fine uh, your wages I mean the structure there that I had I had a secretary um, I had access to telephones I had access to faxes and uh, so you know you were access to a lot of things at RBIB they were very generous to me and to the World Blind Union in my opinion but it, there wasn't only those meetings there was other meetings you had to attend too I mean uh, the, uh, there'd be a women's conference in um, in 
Africa or Asia or somewhere and you'd be expected to attend that because you're out there promoting the status of blind women so you had to be seen and and hear what they had to say and, and talk to them about their, your aspirations and their aspirations. So there was a lot of meetings. I went to 53 countries in that 16-year period and uh, really uh, I wonder how many of them I really did see much of. And uh, But but then again, you always learn something. Like uh, you, you, we, we went to, Nairobi, to Kenya one time in Nairobi, Jeff Gibbs from New Zealand and I, we travelled together a lot. And I checked out I didn't have to have a yellow fever injection. When we landed there, um, Jeff has to have a yellow fever injection. I didn't have to from Australia, but he did from New Zealand. And uh, when they were going to give him this injection, they just picked up this needle, which they'd quite obviously used on several occasions. Oh, God. And uh, he just refused to have it. And uh, they relented and let him in because, you know, we argued uh, that... uh, I didn't have to have it from Australia and New Zealand was very much the same as Australia and all this. Uh, of course. But, uh, you know, so these are the sort of things that happened and uh, you realise that the world is, it sees things differently in different places. Uh, different people have different emphasis. Bill Jolly went to Kenya before me and he had to stay there an extra week because he hadn't had a, a yellow fever injection um, to leave the country to come back through India <laughs> like he could, oh no he could, and there was only one flight a, a week with Air India and that's who we were flying with so you know these things happen to people and uh, in different parts of the world they see things in different ways and I didn't experience any of those things I was very lucky I uh, I don't know why but I just seemed to sail through uh, when we went to Saudi Arabia I had no trouble at all yet Jeff when he went they even squeezed the toothpaste out of his tooth, a tube of toothpaste to see that it was toothpaste. You know? uh, it must be your honest face, David. <laughs> they just let you straight through. I just think being Australians, we seem to be accepted all over the world and uh, with these things. And uh, you know, another story I can tell on that Saudi Arabian one was uh, poor Alani Husfek. He loved his bottle of scotch and he took a bottle of scotch in and... Uh, of course, you weren't allowed to have alcohol there. And, no. Uh, he had the humiliation of having to stand there while they tipped it down the sink. <laughs> that would have hurt. He said that. I would have preferred to be fined. He said. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a lot of funny things happened. But uh, but we seem to get through. I don't know whether it being an Australian or what it is, but um, we seem to have less trouble than other people do in some of these situations. So, David, I thought this is a good time to start talking about the various activities um, that you engaged with as president. And perhaps to make things a little simpler, we could break it down to between the executive meetings. So perhaps if we start to talk about your first two years as president and what your focus was and how, um, how how you worked as president in that time. I took the first two years to <clears throat> really establish some of the things that I wanted and one of them was to the improve the status of blind women within the World Blind Union and so I appointed Kiki Nordstrom from Sweden to the role of chair of that committee. Sorry, what committee was that? The status of blind women right. within the World Blind Union and uh, she was recommended to me by Jeff Gibbs who met her on a tour after our assembly in Cairo in 1992 and uh, I met Kiki in Hong Kong at a conference meeting we were having there and appointed her to that role. Um, 
probably one of the better appointments I made and uh, she ultimately uh, developed that committee to such an extent that she was. She went on to lead the organisation, and a subsequent chair of that committee has done the same thing in Marianne Diamond. So uh, that committee has done a lot of great work, and it was something that we worked on to getting established. And we ran conferences in each of the regions over that four-year period, and uh, we had to attend them, and we heard what people had to say. The other one I looked at was I went to South Africa because there was a a bit of a hiatus in the organisation about South Africa at that time. Um, the Secretary General was debarred from going by the WBU. It's an agreement, a decision I disagreed with at the time. And so when I became President I made it a point to go there because I really believe that um, they had some very good blind people there. They had some very good services to blind people. And although I didn't agree with the apartheid system, what was happening to blind people was nothing to do with apartheid. Well, it was nothing to do with apartheid. It was about the rights of blind people, and and black people were being serviced by the organisation there, as just the same as any other person was. So I wanted to support them. So I went to their conference, and uh, I appointed William Rowland from South Africa, Dr. William Rowland, onto my human rights committee with Mr. Aldiselli from Uruguay and uh, they did fantastic work, both of those people. Um, so these were the things that I was... I wanted to do things within the WBU to to strengthen it amongst its members. Uh, I was seen, and I later was told, that I was the grassroots president, I was the people's president. I, I went and met the blind people in those various countries. Um, like in South Africa, I went to Soweto. Um, to see projects that were being run by blind people, for blind people in that area. Uh, you know, Soweto was an interesting place. There's two million people lived there. Um, it uh, It's not just some little backyard village. It's, it's a, a huge community. It's a community of people that live in abject poverty and people who live in absolute luxury. Uh, and uh, that's what happens in these sort of societies. And I went there and uh, I saw people running projects that... Uh, helped to give a job to people. One of them, they were making bricks. Uh, uh, and they were right next to a power station, so they got the ash from the coal power station and they mixed it with cement. They had a, a, a cement mixer there with the two handles on each side and one guy on each side winding these handles around to mix the cement. And then people tipped it out into a wheelbarrow and another one run it in a wheelbarrow across and tipped it into these wooden moulds out in the sunshine and they dried out and they made bricks and then they had an old truck that sold those bricks to building sites. 17 blind people had a job there doing that all day and uh, I, I saw them do things like that. Uh, I went to other areas where they did other things like manual work and hard work and... I went to schools that had absolutely everything you could think of, but they were only white students, you know, they all had CCTVs, they all that. I went to another school where there were mixed-race children, yeah, um, non-white, non and um, they didn't have much, but they all had Braille. They all had that facility to, to, to be educated. So there were good things happening, although they were happening in an apartheid system. Uh, I attended their National Congress, that was an interesting exercise, I met some of their leaders there who were uh, the black leaders um, 
and some of them were really strong militants. Others were people like myself that reckon there was better ways of doing things than than shouting all the time. Uh, but sometimes you have to shout, but other times you don't have to try and persuade. David, and, I've got to ask, does that include Nelson Mandela? I didn't meet Nelson Mandela, but he um, he certainly was a strong influence in the country at the time, a unifying influence, and... Uh, he uh, he was a sort of man that I I felt that was a bit like that. He 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 knew when to be hard and he knew when to to um, be gentle uh, and to persuade. And, and the thing you have to say about Mandela is that he he never bore a grudge. Um, he he was so badly treated in his younger life, and yet in his later life he he forgave people and just gone on with his job and uh, and he unified his country and he did a great job and I, I took a lot of inspiration from him on that uh, I'd like to have met him but I didn't William Rowland knew him well William was a member of the ANC and uh, a, he's a white man but he was a member of the ANC at the time and uh, he'd, he'd taken part in a lot of those protests so he told me a lot about it but some of these uh, leaders that they had the, uh, the younger ones were very demanding and uh, we we had to we had to ease them down. We had a situation. Sorry, where, political leaders or leaders within the South African Blind Movement. Within the South African Blind Movement and the General Disability Movement in South Africa, um, you know, they, the blind were the blind as a disability group are the privileged group in disability. There's no doubt about that in my mind. The blind have always had the ability because of Braille to have education. If we hadn't had Braille, I think we might have been as badly treated as a lot of other disabilities. But because we had Braille, we had the chance of education. And uh, even in the poorest countries, I, I would receive Braille letters from people that were, the Braille was actually embossed on envelopes. <laughs> on any piece of the paper they could find. Uh, yeah. They'd even get toilet paper and put four sheets together. <laughs> and 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 um, you know make it. They get a paper bag, and uh, they would emboss that paper from a brown paper bag. So yeah. braille was there. It's like you know people people did that with a pencil. They got bits of paper from anywhere and just made a note on it. And mm. so that's why we're, we've had that advantage. And and I think that's why a number of the blind people have been leaders in various disability movements in the world. But it's also carried a bit of burden with it as well because we've been seen as the privileged ones. But, you know, we were there and we've done the best we can. So but I saw that in South Africa and it worked well there. I saw it in other countries too. And um, when you went to Latin America, in Latin America, Latin America, again, was very good with its braille because it had great support from Spain. And that's an advantage too in having a single language. Like um, Spanish was spoken in most parts of South Africa. South America, other than Brazil and uh, <clears throat> maybe one or two others, but uh, but even there, the uh, Spanish was uh, interchangeable virtually with Portuguese in those parts of the world. David, can I take you back to your beginning as the president? Was the the organisation running as well as you thought it should, or was there administrative or functional issues that you needed to address as president? There was, it was run as well as it could have be expected at that time. Um, 
Duncan was a very good president, Duncan Watson, but he had a real problem uh, managing a couple of the uh, delegates or the presidents from the regions, and particularly Europe and North America, and uh, uh, because he he was basically a European himself, and uh, and he was a, a more of a gentleman uh, in the fact that he 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 really found it difficult to impose himself sometimes on people. Um, we had um, those two, and then we had a, a guy from uh, Asia. He he was a bit of a loose cannon, and uh, and um, you know Latin America had a bit of a language problem. Uh, we had to use interpreters there, and that. That does create problems from time to time, and uh, then you know we went there. So, what I had to do, and uh, was, and I, I knew this right from the start. I had to impose myself on these two delegates, Huswick and Jernigan. Both of them are very fine men, but they had a real blind spot, really, and that really was <coughs> about philosophy, and that. The Europeans were of the opinion, and they were in the position to do it, where the blind people actually ran all the services for blind people. You know, and that does not happen in a lot of other countries, including North America and including Australia. And uh, so they were, Jernigan was of the opinion that you didn't have to run the services, you wanted a strong advocate body that made its demands and it implemented its policies. Um, you know, and you've got to say that in both cases there are strengths and there are weaknesses. But these two are very strong-minded men. And uh, so I just took the, the position that, uh, okay, I was going to hear what they had to say, but they weren't not going to dominate my presidency. And uh, and they did dominate Duncan's, and so I, I took that role. And, and I'd say I, I think I'm quite a good chairman in the fact that I, I try to get everybody to have expressed their opinion. And by doing that, it took some of the, the highlights away from them, and uh, it let some of these other guys put forward ideas, and, and some of those ideas helped to defuse a lot of the issues that these two guys were raising and, and their attitudes and so we had to work our way around that. So that was what I did right from the start and I was successful in the fact that I had goodwill <coughs> from everybody and I was friends with each of these people. I could go and have a drink with them or have a meal with them and um, no trouble at all, you know. And, and actually you'd get them around the table together at a, at a dinner and they were fantastic. They'd bounce jokes off one another and tell, you know, different stories. And they were talking, but you put them into a meeting situation and whoop, they became different people. And I've, I found a way of doing, overcoming that and that was more as to use my social activities with them to get them on the same page more often than I had them off. They were on the same page. They both wanted to get something done for the World Blind Union, but they had different ways of wanting to do it. Mm. So that first two years really was about the status of women um, and for you as president. And it human was a, rights, yeah. Uh, and the human rights of women. Yeah, yeah. Trying to include and involve the nations that weren't as prominent or weren't as vocal mm. and giving them a greater say, mm. 
uh, and also addressing areas of organizational dysfunction where it mm. just wasn't working as yeah. as well as it could mm. have yeah. so moving on then to the next two years what would you see as the highlights of that time in particular uh, in respect of your your role as president well i suppose the the main thing that came out of that was the um, 22 rules on standard rules on the rights of people with disabilities from the united nations that a lot of that work was done by uh, William Rowland and uh, Alice Eldy from uh, Uruguay. Sorry, uh, I'll interrupt. Those those rules are probably not familiar to most people, but they were the precursor of the statement of human rights from the United Nations on people with disabilities. Yes. So, mm-hmm. okay. So they they're the the groundwork of probably what is a much better known document today. Yes, that's for sure. And um, <clears throat> they set up a special rapporteur and a, a, a committee to implement that. And we were fortunate to be able to put two people on that committee. And I put um, William Rowland on there from South Africa and Penny Harton, uh, a lady from Canada. Uh, I put them both on that committee and they did great work in implementing that program and actually working towards the later programs that are passed by the United Nations to stay where we are today. And and I would say that <clears throat> all those things come together and are finalised in the Marrakesh Agreement, which is done just recently about copyright. So it all links on, it just leads on and on. It's, just, it's, like, it's like building a wall. You put in a brick at a time and you gradually get there. So that's where we put a lot of effort in there. David, could I ask you what the relationship was between the United Nations and the World Blind Union, just to better understand what the mechanisms are for the invitation to participate in that committee? I presume the World Blind Union wasn't actually a committee of the United Nations, but rather it was a recognised by the United Nations as a, an important player in terms of um, issues on a world stage for people with disabilities. Yes, um, we were not a committee of the world of the United Nations. We were what was known as a. We were seen as a special interest group by the United Nations. Um, there were about two hundred and fifty of them there, actually, um, at all these meetings of these special interest groups. Uh, everything from prisoners in Vietnam and, and Burma to anything else you could think of that uh, people had a disagreement about or human rights about. So. But the part we were interested in was the disability area, and there was a specific number there, including DPI and a number of others. Sorry, what's DPI, David? Disabled Persons International, which was a multi-disability organisation. They actually, in many ways, were opposed to us as a special interest group. Um, There's always been an issue about whether we should be special interests or whether we should be... um, universal or for disabilities um, but WBU has always held its position where it is and so when the United Nations did pass those standard rules we were there and um, I have to say the Australian government was a great support to us uh, Ambassador Butler was very strong with us and uh, kept us informed what was happening and, and spoke for us so uh, we did have a good ally there um, and that did help did the UN, they've, they've invited you, to, or the World Blind Union, to participate. Mm. Um, you've been able to determine to 
representatives. Mm. Does that mean then that the UN financially supports those people and the World Blind Union to facilitate that participation? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, they, they fund the special rapporteur, and the way they fund that is that uh, they get a government to nominate somebody, and if they nominate him, they also pay for him or her. So, um, yeah, the United Nations is uh, pretty tight-fisted with its money. Uh, but, uh, yes, we went to the, I went to a couple of the meetings... Um, I found um, them quite boring, actually. Uh, uh, I've never heard so much um, unproven statements in my life. Uh, I remember one country got up and said that uh, it was Brazil and said that the president of Brazil had banned poverty in his country. <laughs> that was in, that was well, in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> they can ban unhappiness at the same time. Yes, and... Uh, you know, others made uh, other sort of statements like that. But um, overall, when it came down to the the issue on the um, standard rules, we, um, we 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 could talk to people, but we couldn't speak in the General Assembly. And the final assembly that they had on that was held in Copenhagen, where the final vote had to be taken. And uh, I was at that meeting, and it dragged on and got to a stage where I had to leave and I think that was fortuitous in the fact that I did because we were invited to speak and so was a member from the deaf community and the deaf lady spoke first and they had to use an interpreter. And That course, would be a sign interpreter? Signing interpreter. Yep. And she was signing and um, interpreter and of course that was all up on the big screen and that was quite impressive. And then Shaka from um, Tunisia was my vice president who went along and he read our statement from Braille and he actually embellished the statement and turned it into about three pages but it was so impressive that um, we actually won the day and uh, some of the uh, delegates at the time told us that that was the, the, the turning point the, the deaf signer and the blind Braille reader talking about the equality of people and our access to education, employment and the general community can make life a lot easier for people with disabilities and it's funny how different things influence people and that's what influenced them at that time and we pulled the non-aligned nations on, there were 78 of them and uh, they were... What they, does that mean, non-aligned? They, well they weren't connected to Russia or the United States right. <laughs> or okay. Europe and... Uh, yep. They were African and Asian countries mostly. And uh, so we pulled them on board and then once we did that we got it through. So do I understand from what you've said that there was opposition coming from the non-aligned countries because they were arguing, look, we've solved this problem. We don't have these problems. We've looked after people. Everybody's fine. No, more the fact that they couldn't afford it. Okay. So mm. it was going to put burdens yeah. of expectation yeah. from the United Nations. Yeah which carried with it state costs. Yep. That's, that seemed to me to be the main reason why they were opposing it. And did that end up happening? Or did, did the 22 rules actually cause state resources, more state resources, to go into disability services? Well, it would have, because it, <coughs> people started to insist on education, employment, rehabilitation, uh, general access to information. Uh, all of these issues were part of those standard rules that people had an equal right to them and it it gave more strength to the advocates in those countries so in final analysis yes just like the NDIS is costing us money in Australia 
because um, we've we've pushed hard on most of these human rights issues that have come from the United Nations, and uh, these are all and this is the sort of thing that's happening all over the world. So it is a cost on government uh, to create better and e more equal opportunities, but that's what government's there for. Yes, it? indeed. Yep. So. The the 22 rules as a mechanism, did that require nations to report back on their progress and adherence to those rules? Yes, it did. It, um, they were pretty flimsy, some of the reports. Um, a lot of these things are more, uh, more symbolic than in reality. Um, you know, we we adopted the rules here in Australia the same as we've adopted the other conventions on people with disabilities. But with all due respect, there are still pockets of uh, discrimination in this country, and uh, there's areas where they're not being implemented. Uh, but they do give you a platform to work from, and uh, we can do better in those regards. Uh, like we still have in Australia, with all due respect, we have these six states and two territories and they are really autonomous in many ways and uh, the United the, the federal government really the only stick it's got is, is money and uh, it can demand certain um, responses from the states but it doesn't always get them I mean, like um, where's the braille production in Victoria uh, where's um, you know it's, it's done in a charity and uh, that charity uh, uh, has charges for that now, and the costs are prohibitive. Um, so we're uh, those issues. Um, um, fortunately, with um, modern technology and that sort of thing, we're able to access more reading material now in other formats, in the audio format, which is available to the whole community. And of course, that's better. But there's still a need for Braille for blind people in education and employment. Um, you know, people say, oh, you know, you don't need it anymore, you've got an iPhone. Well, well, do sighted people do away with a pen and paper? And when they do that, uh, then we might do away with Braille. Mm -hmm. The other big issue that you've mentioned to me as um, dominating your mm -hmm. second two years is that of um, the emancipation of blind people in Africa. That to me was <coughs> an, such an ongoing project that um, uh, I, I was just one part of a, a long chain of events that I needed to improve that situation and a lot of those are beyond the scope of a, any organisation or advocate for blind people. Uh, they're more of a, a economic and, a, and not only an economic, a demo democracy view in uh, those countries but uh, we uh, we worked hard in that area we ran uh, conferences on human rights we ran conferences on the status of women uh, I, and i believe the mind women in africa were leaders quite frankly in a lot of those movements to make change uh, and uh, that's how that worked we when i brought in the fact that uh, if we were going to subsidise delegates to go to a meeting, there had to be equal numbers of male and female. That uh, was fiercely resisted in many parts of the world, but we got it through, and uh, and it has proved successful in the WBU now. Women are much more um, active and allowed to be active within the organisation, and I, I use the word allowed because they weren't allowed before. They just 
weren't were just not seen and uh, not but now they are we've had two women presidents of the world blind union out of six presidents uh, it's uh, not exactly equal but it's a it's not a bad record uh, and uh, we've had uh, in actual fact we're two out of the last four so that is 50 50. <laughs> you told us a, a an appalling story earlier about the abuse of a blind woman in the philippines did you also see abuse and exploitation of blind women in Africa? No, not to that same extent, no. Um, um, the only problem in um, parts of Africa was that uh, they were used uh, by men and um, then they, you know, once they got pregnant or got a couple of kids, the bloke would just move on and pick up another one somewhere. Uh, and so the women were left to look after the, the children and raise them themselves and quite often fend for themselves but in a lot of those villages the community worked reasonably well together uh, but uh, then through the women's committee a lot of them banded together to create little projects themselves where they I think in Nigeria they made soap and uh, they used to sell it in the markets and that sort of thing because palm oil was pretty cheap over there it grew everywhere and they could make soap out of that I saw that happening in the Philippines as well and uh, that created an income for them uh, so they worked together and as a matter of fact they when we went to a conference in Nairobi the women from one of the countries brought along a box of soap that they had made and presented it to me and there was 144 pieces, pieces of soap <laughs> you had to take this home <laughs> and uh, so I, I did a deal with the hotel we were staying at and sold it to the hotel oh good idea and uh, gave the money to the women to go shopping with yeah. and uh, well done because uh, <laughs> I explained to them the rules that would not allow me but I did keep, oh, I, no did keep I did keep one piece and brought it home and uh, and it was very good soap you know they would have thought you were an importer of soap if you tried <laughs> to come through Australian customs without much I think I might have trouble so so we did that and um, that, we were very hands-on in a lot of the way things we did um, we we tried to be more hands-on it you know anyone can get up and give great speeches and tell the world how it should be what you really need is more people who get out there and and work to make it happen on the ground and work with the people to achieve these processes rather than telling them how to do it work with them and I, that's what I try to do and it's always been my philosophy anyway to try and work with people rather than tell them what to do all the time the period as president is you were talking about opportunities to meet with people from around the world mm -hmm. and um, you talked about some of the African leaders did you have opportunities to meet and deal with um, other world leaders from time to time you would meet um, one or two, mostly in Asia, I met them. Um, uh, you didn't seem to meet them too often. You met politicians, of course, in various parts of the world. But, uh, no, we didn't. I didn't talk to the Prime Minister of England or President of um, any of the countries in, uh, in uh, Europe. Uh, I didn't meet the President of the United States. Uh, did meet some of the officials in uh, Canada um, at a conference I went to but no we didn't do that because I didn't see <coughs> the role of the World Blind Union as usurping the role of the national organisations in their own countries. Um, 
we uh, when we uh, had a conference they usually had some dignitary to open it i didn't go to the one in south africa when the president of south africa opened that one and uh, that's one i didn't attend uh, that's since my term as president but before that i mean we had uh, a princess open the one in spain uh, when i'm trying to think who opened the one in um, in um, Egypt, when I became president, uh, I think was some member of the royal family. Uh, you tended to get people like that, and of course they were so covered by uh, security and that. Uh, and I, I didn't go that far out of my way to meet them, with all due respect, because I, I didn't see they were going to be much advantage to us. So I was more interested in talking to the people who would be an advantage to us, um, and uh, I had other people who could do the other that work. Hmm. David, I know. A big issue and it, it wasn't necessarily a good one but it it was a challenge for you as presidency uh, in terms of where the convention was going to be held and issues that came up with Hong Kong. Yes when I became president I, um, I was determined to have my um, General Assembly my farewell one in, um, in Asia and uh, the natural place to put it was Hong Kong because Hong Kong is a universal city uh, you know it has uh, good facilities um, it, it's a sort of place that's on the main route to anywhere in the world and that was another view I had that you should always have meetings on main traffic routes it keeps the keeps the cost down and uh, we would have that conference in 1996 and Mrs Chan from um, Hong Kong Society for the Blind and uh, Chung Yao from the Hong Kong Blind Union were the conveners and uh, they were doing it. They, they were very enthusiastic and uh, were going to do a good job. But, um, unfortunately, uh, that coincided with the time that China, uh, Hong Kong was going to be um, drop its ties with England and become part of China in 1997. And the people in Hong Kong, the business people in Hong Kong and the ruling government at the time saw this as a great opportunity for tourism and uh, they thought the whole world was going to visit them and that... They just about did, I think. Well, they did for a while and they yeah. dropped off at the end um, because they exploited it to such an extent that, you know, we couldn't get full hotel accommodation. You had to get bits here and bits there and, and the that, cost kept that's rising. That's conference delegates yeah, couldn't get. Yeah, we couldn't get a conference hotel where yeah. we, everything could be set. We were going to be all over Hong Kong and uh, the costs were rising all the time. They kept increasing the costs and it just got to a stage where it was beyond possibility and so I went to Hong Kong and spoke to them there and uh, you know and tried to uh, plead with the hotels and that that hotels were 400 rooms they would give us 100 you know and all this sort of thing and we'd booked this out four years before like this is five years be five years before um, before um, they were going to secede from England and um, it just got too hard so we had a meeting in Rome which I went to from Hong Kong and I put to the board that we would move the move the assembly from Hong Kong and then of course we had to decide where it was going to be and we had to go through a process for that. Um, was that contentious when you put that up? Was did it cause No the uh, delegates understood it clearly uh, it, we, we knew that it, was, it had to be done but it did create big problems from in Hong Kong and there was a lot of um, subsequent um, 
toing and froing. I used to get constant calls from various organisations in Hong Kong, like to deal with the tourism, to deal with the, uh, the merger, all these issues, and want to know what was the real reason why we changed. And I just, <laughs> and I just kept saying it was economic, and uh, you know we just couldn't afford what you people were asking, and and even from mainland China, questions were asked of me, and a lot of pressure was being applied that we should go back and have it at Hong Kong. They were losing face and all the rest of it. Were these government officials in China that were contacting? Oh, yes, and in Hong Kong. Wow. Well, they lost faith, and I I kept saying to them all the time, look, it has nothing to do with the people in Hong Kong. They're great people. It was just the economics and the the actual ability to run a conference. We just couldn't do it. And... um, did they think it was a, a political thing? Do they think it was um, perhaps America um, influencing decisions and turning them against China? No, I think it was more of a loss of face, um, they thought. But also, I'm, I'm sure, and I know, that um, other organisations were cancelling as well. And for the same reasons, they they priced themselves out of the market and uh, and in actual fact they didn't get the result in the last couple of years that they expected because of that very reason and and, uh, and that's how it was and so we went on from there and uh, I understand that Euclid even received calls when he took over after me and uh, he actually had to send somebody there. And, uh, to and China sure, or Hong Kong? Hong Kong and yeah. And assure them, you know, and this is back in about 1998, this was after the merger and everything, and uh, assure them that the whole issue was economic and there was nothing political about it at all. Mm. Now, as we're coming to the end of your presidency, we've also, it's a particularly important moment, I think, in terms of your promotion of women because you were able to influence who it was that was going to become the vice president after you and that person was going to go on and become the first female president. So perhaps if you could talk about that. Yeah, well, Kiki Nordstrom was the um, person I appointed as chairperson of the Status on Blind Women's Committee, and uh, she um, she did a very good job. And uh, so Euclid, um, in Euclid's terms, she got elected as first vice president, which meant that she would go on and become the president after Euclid Heary. So... I was the third vice president, uh, third, third president of the WBU. Euclid was the fourth, and then Kiki became the fifth. And uh, she she was followed two years later by Marianne Diamond. So it uh, it did, and Marianne had actually been the chairperson of the women's committee after Kiki. So you know it was a good uh, stepping stone for women within the World Blind Union to show their their abilities, and and they reap the rewards. That has brought us to not only the end of your presidency, but also your legacy as the president of the World Blind Union. So I think that's an excellent place to stop. And um, we'll pick up uh, with the next episode, um, looking at some of the broader disability issues and um, your life after presidency. Yep, that'll be good. (laughs) Thank you.